David Perkins talking with Greg Bishop, Santa Fe, New Mexico, June 21st, 2018. Hello, hello, hello. And we're just testing that a little bit. See what we got. No, the the whole extraterrestrial thing is not uh, not a viable solution to this. We we need to go f- through a turning point in the study of of this whole domain, away from ideology. We're not here to prove that we're being visited by you know aliens from this planet or that star. That may very well be true, but we have not done the basic work. I have this hunch that the um, that this that this phenomenon is um, comes from, comes from some sort of domain of pure information, and the fact that it can interact with us at all suggests that uh, that we inhabit the domain is also pure information. Are we uh, go conditioned here? Yes. in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about... Radio Mysterioso. I came to Santa Fe to speak at a conference, uh, and David Perkins, um, who I've known about but uh, never really talked to for years, which is unfortunate. Chris kept trying. Chris O'Brien kept trying to tell us to talk to each other. I guess neither of us listened until I came to got <laughs> to Santa Fe here, and we talked on the phone. And Dave said, "Why don't you just stay over?" I thought that that was really nice of him, not knowing who the hell I am or if I have strange personal habits or something like that. Thank you so much, David. Absolutely. My pleasure. And to finally meet you, actually. We've been talking a lot, and we've been trying to avoid things that we might talk about on the show, but we can repeat them. That's fine. Um, You mentioned to me that you were, where were you from? uh, Oregon? No. No, North Carolina. North Carolina. Deep South. Yeah. How'd you end up in uh, Colorado, in the Southwest, in Southern Colorado, I guess, specifically? Well, briefly, uh, 
born in the South and went to public high school in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, got into Yale, went to graduate school. Uh, this was all happening in, in the late 60s. At that point, uh, I was heavily into political action, the Vietnam War. Seemed like the whole society was falling apart around me, and uh, a lot of us had the same ideas. Like, let's be part of the uh, solution and not part of the problem. So we migrated to the West, to Colorado, to start at what a commune there used to be called. Now it's intentional community, but it's more like an artist colony. <clears throat> it's still there. We just celebrated our 50th anniversary, Libre. Is the name of the place, and it's uh, a group of people that's been there 50 years, artists and musicians of all varieties, and uh, we were trying to create an atmosphere for free thinking and free thought and personal freedom to the max, which we did, uh, which was one of the greatest things that ever happened to me because I got into an environment where I had su support uh, for my offbeat ventures and interests, and so it was a mutually supportive group of pretty bright and talented, creative people. So I ended up there, and I kind of migrated to Santa Fe years ago and have a place, still keep the place in Colorado, have a place here. I go back and forth endlessly. So that it was uh, part of the upheaval of the, of the late 60s that ejected us out of the cities and out of the schools. and. Like, let's start a whole brave new world, something, yeah. something new. For me. Uh -huh. 50 years is pretty, I think that's the oldest so-called commune in the United States, continuous at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, so you were there in the late 60s, early 70s? To, to Colorado. I first came out in 69 with my then wife, Roberta mm -hmm. Rice, who went to Vassar and also went to graduate school at the same time I did. Uh, and we got together and lived together 10 years, built a house at Libre and all with no power tools, no experience. We just jumped right in and say, we're going to build a big house and around this gigantic rock. <laughs> in the middle of the house is this huge boulder. Uh, so we said, well, let's just, uh, we'll put spokes on there and we'll build it up and stack up we tried to build everything out of, you know, used materials, basically. Try to build it for as cheaply as possible. Uh, we had no skills, like I say. And so we st uh, stacked up these uh, reject railroad ties and put it all together and built this house around a huge boulder. Uh, it's a very unique place. And all the houses there, it's like Hobbit land or something. They're all <laughs> crazy houses very artistic and creative. So that's that was a lot of fun, a lot of fun. And uh, But in terms of this kind of research, it was just the greatest place in the world to be because you had so much personal freedom and we were living a life of you know, voluntary poverty. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then again, we didn't have any bosses and we didn't have jobs per se. I mean, we have to go out and do stuff you know, occasionally to make a little money to keep things going, but it just offered a lot of time and freedom in, in an incredibly beautiful place. It's just a spectacular place at 9,000 feet overlooking, you know, like the Alps of America, basically, the Sangre de Cristo. 
So it was uh, just a really good place to stretch out. If you wanted to be quiet, you could be as quiet as you want for as long as you want. If you wanted activity, you could get into the hubbub of things happening. So uh, it was a very unique, unique situation. But uh, it's a different time now. It's, I don't, you know, I don't think anybody could really get anything like that together in this particular day and age. No. Or have the impetus to do it, really. Right. What catapulted you into this, uh, into this weird stuff we're going to talk about that has uh, obsessed, frustrated, and delighted you for the last how many years? <laughs> <laughs> I figure it's 40, 43 years Ugh. of research. Mm -hmm. uh, well, interestingly, uh, that area in Southern Colorado was where Snippy the Horse, uh, the famous classic mutilation that got such international publicity, that had happened you know, maybe 20 miles away from where we were, mm -hmm. as the crow flies on the other side of the Sangres. Uh, I don't honestly remember if I knew about Snippy. I think I did. But uh, that, the people who actually found that land found it at almost the exact same time that Snippy, the horse, got mutilated. So there's two events that are some, somehow synchronous. But uh, in terms of my own interest, I was interested in... I don't know, science fiction as a kid. I, I love science fiction movies. I remember, uh, you know, stuff like Forbidden Planet and all that kind of thing. Uh, going to the movies by myself on Saturdays and watching the science fiction movies and just being in awe of all of the concepts and the thoughts that pervade by science fiction. Uh, also, I, I read, I, I was a real reader all my life, and I read all the, the Kehoe books. And, you know, I was interested in flying saucers. I got through science fiction and started reading about flying saucers from outer space. And I thought, wow, this is pretty interesting. And then I think I was 14, maybe 15, when I found Carl Jung's book, mm. Flying Saucers, A Modern Myth of Things Seen in the Sky. And I read that and I went, wow, this is a lot more interesting than I thought. You know, it's not quite so simple, is it? And at the same time, I remember another... Very instrumental book was One Two Three Infinity by George Gamow. You never heard of that one? Uh, check it out. It's it's a classic. Uh, so you know, my young mind. I was a teenager. And I was exploring all these things, and so the, the, I remember those two items: Young's book and Gamow's book. Gamow, of course, is one of the you know leading proponents of the Big Bang theory. He was an astronomer and he was a really good writer and popularizer of science. And it just opened up huge worlds to me about uh, infinite possibilities of the future and uh, all kinds of the, the interior part of it through Carl Jung and the exterior part of it through actually our flying saucer's real craft or visiting the Earth. So uh, from that age, I was way, way immersed in it and stayed that way. Uh, I didn't actively pursue it, except uh, in terms of going out to investigate cases, for instance, until the mid-70s when the cattle mutilations were happening in all over, all over the West, really, but especially in Colorado, uh, several hundred. And it was hard to ignore because it was the Colorado Press Association story of the year. It was every headline, you know. The governor says, greatest outrage in the 
you know, history of uh, Western cattle business, and everybody was running around, Colorado Bureau of Investigation, everybody was, didn't know what to do with it. So, uh, a cattle mutilation actually happened about a mile from my house during that time. Well, and that's, uh, that's the one I, I talk about in some of my writings where I was coming back from town and I saw the, mutila- the mutilation by the road and stopped and looked at it. It's like, wow. And uh, I noticed, I didn't poke or j- you know, jab it or anything, but uh, <laughs> I was like, uh, here it is, well, right on my doorstep. And uh, I did notice that uh, it was in some area of kind of uh, white limestone and I noticed a few drops of blood, and uh, that really got my attention. I went and talked to the sheriff and the newspaper editor. They didn't know who I was at that point. I hadn't been in the neighborhood that long, really, and uh, we were kind of a mystery to the locals. They didn't quite know <laughs> what to make of us. I mean, they're this relatively quiet, secluded Hispanic, ancient Hispanic community, and uh, yeah, so I went and asked them, I said, I'm researching cattle mutilations, and what do you know about them? You know, the one that, there's one that happened out there near Gardner. And they said, well, we all pretty much know who did it. And I went, really, who? Uh, well, ever since those uh, people, those hippie people, moved in up the road there, uh, this is kind of when this started around here. So in other words, I was a suspect in the very first cattle mutilation <laughs> case. <laughs> And I thought, this is going to be interesting. But uh, those both of those guys turned out to be very close friends and very helpful. And, uh, and the sheriff, he thought it was the government doing it. The editor didn't have any idea who was doing it. Uh, but uh, that kind of got me on the road. And I, I mulled it over for a while. And I had already been saving all the press clippings, just because I'm a cultural historian of sorts. So I thought, this is different. Uh, so I, I had a pile going on it. So that really kind of set me off, and I started traveling out and visiting sheriffs from other count- nearby counties and seeing what their files were, what they had, and talking to the ranchers and collecting more stuff in police reports and started building a file on it. And, and, you know, I must say I was probably fairly ego-driven about my search because uh, in my mind, I was thinking, I'm, I, you know, I want to be a journalist, and you know, I want to be a writer. And it was kind of the post-Watergate days, yeah. And that was glamorous. Yeah, I've uh, I've got a mystery I'm going to solve. Yeah. yeah, I'm going to figure this out. I don't care what it takes. I'm going to get it. And then uh, you know, I get a lot of awards <laughs> or something. Yeah. Uh, but it it just sucked me in so far. And I realized uh, after a while, a year or so, that's like this is really complex. This is very, very complex. And uh, so I was, you know, going after it as an investigative journalist, thinking I was going to crack this story when nobody else could. Right here I am, forty-three years later. <laughs> uh, I almost got it, though. I almost got it. Just hold on a little while longer. <laughs> well, do you think there's a a solution? I mean, we jumped way ahead by me asking that yeah. question. Maybe you can skirt it and we can go back to the background. Well, I'll skirt it because uh, as we've talked over the last couple of few days, uh, there probably is not a solution. Uh, you know, to, uh, It would be hubris at this point to say, 
that you know we think we can solve it because it's 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 an imponderable in so many ways and it's, it's so i don't know it's, there's just so many prongs and tentacles to the whole situation once you start into the research process and you can't really cut off any avenue of inquiry as you're going along it's like well wait a minute uh a Bigfoot was sighted near a mutilation site? Uh, I don't want to think about Bigfoot. Let's put that over there. I'm not, never, <laughs> you know, that's not part of this. So uh, in terms of solving it, I, it it's a, at this point, it's a matter of personal curiosity more than anything. Mm-hmm. And it really has been for quite a long time. That's why I haven't been terribly active in the field uh, in terms of trying to promote any theories or ideas or sell any books or do anything in particular to uh, you know, self-aggrandizement of, of the situation. It, it's just simmered along. It's like, I really would like to know what is behind this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just so curious about this. And then at a certain point, you've got so much energy invested in the situation. <laughs> that you say, well, I can't just dump it now. And I've been tempted to. I sure have, uh, because it, it's a huge drain on resources. For one thing, nobody finances this kind of work. No, not really. I guess they did sort of for a little while. Yeah, I mean, not with you, but no. Uh, so it it, uh, it drains your resources. It takes an, any amount of time that you could possibly put into it. It will take, and energy and effort, uh, and that gets to be a bit of a drain over time. So, you know, in my own mind, I I would say, well, why don't you just accept the idea that it's predator damage and it's, it's a, you know, collective delusion of some sort that people are seeing these mutilated animals and uh, they're misidentifying them and it's turned into kind of a hysteria and it's a social phenomenon of sorts Uh, and just leave it at that. You're going to accept that. And I went, well, that's intellectual dishonesty. I mean, that's just not really being honest. <laughs> and I, I still, to this day, think that there's something enormously important about it. And it's, I mean, we can get into some of that as, right, we, as right. we talk. It has great import. Whatever the provisional theory uh, you can come up with, any of them are really important. You know, even as Chris O'Brien, my partner, says, you know, if this is an episode of collective um, delusion, then why aren't the, the, there stacks of PhDs of people saying this is one of the most remarkable uh, yeah. cases of collective <laughs> of mass delusion, delusion, of mass ever. delusion ever? And why? And the, you know, the sociologists who, who back that up say, well, they put out these little studies and say, well, it was a the ranchers are having a really hard time. They're in a delusionary spiral, downward spiral, because of economic pressures, which makes them go out and not be able to see things clearly or think clearly. For what they are, yes. By, by people who don't, who've never been on a ranch, right. in a lot of cases. Yeah. At the beginning there, we'll go back, we'll, we'll start being chronological a little bit again. Um, what did you think was going on? Did you, did you not have a, oh. a any preset... Uh, well, yeah. Was there something you were working towards when you said, yeah. okay, I think this is it, and we will... True. Uh, I would say when I first started collecting the clippings, to me, especially the helicopter aspect, uh, to me indicated that it was some sort of government program. And 
I had been kind of schooled by various people over the years about who, uh, fellow colleague researcher types who's, who were really into exposing the government's uh, biological warfare testing programs and trying to figure out what was being tested and if this was training or simulations that is it was just some sort of training and how to how to do uh, operations like that or are they testing out some particular items you know to be used to possibly on civilian populations uh, any number of scenarios but in my mind I thought this is the government that's when I started in uh, I, I was just almost certain it had to be because if you accept the, the helicopter reports at face value uh, who's got the ability to fly fleets of helicopters around and do something like that and not get caught, uh, not have a breakdown, not have a problem? I mean, it's, it's, uh, it was kind of hard to believe, but feasible. Yeah. So then that, uh, after a while, I was, well, one sheriff in particular, Sheriff Lou Girodo in uh, Los Animas County, Colorado, he was just a straight-out extraterrestrial person, you know, I mean, proponent. Uh, he just said, well, it's got to be aliens from outer space. What else could it be? And I went, what? Here's a sheriff, a Colorado sheriff. Yeah. Right? Um, so I was a little shocked by that. And then at the same time, I was getting these reports from Texas, for instance, about police reports that weren't met for the public describing these discs that were coming down, landing in the highways and emitting a blue glow, and that mutilation would be found in the area. Uh, so, and of course, Snippy the Horse was uh, totally linked to UFO activity, and that became a major international meme, I call them. Yes. Uh, which went all over the world. Flying saucers killed my horse. Yeah. was the headline. Uh-huh. Hard to miss. <laughs> So that that that's a delicious meme. <laughs> really, that has been. Uh, it's really had a lot of uh, legs. That particular meme, and you see, you still see it to this day in this state of New Mexico. Uh, at one point, all the road signs were between. I guess it was Espanol and north of Taos, or almost to Cuesta. Somebody had stenciled in a, pic, uh, a flying saucer on those road signs that show a cow, the yes. orange sign. Yeah, so be, beware of cattle crossing right. the highway. So it was like, beware of flying saucers abducting cattle. <laughs> and somebody went and did it in southern New Mexico. Hundreds of these things. Yeah. Who has the time and inclination to go around stenciling flying saucers <laughs> onto road signs? <laughs> so anyway, th this meme is so persistent. And I, I got a kick out of the one... Back at Chris, this last Christmas, I told Chris O'Brien about it. And uh, uh, anyway, it was a a light show at the um, I guess it's the Biological Gardens or whatever it's called in Albuquerque, uh, pub, publicly funded. And one of the one of the uh, displays was in lights a flying saucer beaming up a cow. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I, and I saw it on the nightly news, and the newscaster was saying, Oh, come on down and see the beautiful Christmas display. It's fun for the whole family, and, and watch this cow being abducted by a UFO. <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> and this is public money. paid for it all. Yeah. Uh, so 
Chris and I uh, trade these memes back and forth about the cows being beamed up. Uh, but back to your original. You even got your lamp in there. That's yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's ubiquitous all all over the world, really. Uh-huh. Uh, so Chris and I trade those memes that we find in advertising. It's used everywhere a lot. Yes, to sell everything to do you know for all kinds of purposes. And I just, I still don't quite know why it grabs the public imagination so strongly. I still don't quite get it. But it's, you know, it's kept it in the public eye for over 50 years. Everybody has that idea. It sticks very well. Like my friend Mac Tony said, I said about delicious, something is yeah. just so, it's so attractive to people's imagination that it becomes, you know, it's kind of like a, a big hit, a musical. Right. You know, it tops yeah. the charts, at least last years ago when that happened, sort of organically, sort of. And that becomes what it is, and nobody can really think yeah. in any other terms. So did that idea, did that meme, that idea, that theory behind it, that ever hold a lot of water for you? Did you consider it for a while? Sure. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, that, that's that's what I was saying. Is like I went from government, and then I started talking to sheriffs and ranchers, and, you know, I'd seen flying saucers. Yeah. Uh, along with helicopters, and I was like, wait, wait a minute, how could there be helicopters and flying saucers? So gradually, I, I shifted to, toward ufology, basically, because I was saying, uh, you know, my final position, right now at least, my position of the moment, is that the mutilations of, in the thousands and uh, the, the way that they have apparently been done and the prevalence and the sheer numbers and the whole thing, it, it's just out of the realm of possibility that this could be any kind of human agency that we're familiar with. It just could not have happened. Uh, you just got to, at a certain point, assign probabilities to certain things. And it's like, this is incredibly improbable. Something else is going on here. And plus, once you start studying the whole thing, you realize that there are all these other aspects of it, other vectors that uh, you can't ignore, other anomalies within the anomaly that are beyond anything humans can do. And I know that's a, that's a judgment, and people still say, well, it still could be the government. They could have all these technologies. I don't think so. I just. All right. Um, see, I'm over, uh, talking to you, Chris, a few other people. I'm always torn between. I can't come on, uh, on with one idea. Yeah. Because some people tell me, no, humans could do all this. It would be very difficult, but they could do it. And then some say, no, there's certain parts of this that. As far as we know, nobody could do. Could you, could you give me an example of why you think that? Or a few. I mean, there's got to be more well, than one. Uh, there are just so many, I don't even know where to begin. Uh, okay, one that would make somebody go, hey, wait a second, maybe, maybe I better look into this a little well, closer. there's the technology of it, and uh, some of the surgeries that so-called are there, that are described, and I've seen the reports, is how could they have removed the embryo through a slit that big in the cow's uterus? Yeah, uh, and the embryo's gone. These are bats telling you this stuff. Yeah, uh, and the level of so-called surgery and excision is extreme, especially in the middle of the night. You know, with a laser or whatever you're yeah. supposedly doing. But I think more than that, it's just the prevalence of them, and we're seriously talking about thousands of cases. And uh, I think. 
in my mind, it's just saying, wait a minute, somewhere along the line, one of those so-called helicopters would have gone down, or somebody would have talked in the bar, or something would have happened. I mean, I suppose you could say the Manhattan Project, they kept that secret. Okay, sure. But uh, this is just way beyond. And it's, 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 not, it's not in the controlled environment that the Manhattan Project could right, have kept secret. exactly right. And it wasn't, really, because some of that got out here to the Soviets during yeah. the project. Right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it definitely got it got hooked up with ufology in my mind, or or whatever it is. some other agency I call it uh, was behind it, and it was more than humans were capable of. It's just it's just the conclusion that I came to after hundreds and hundreds of cases of reviewing them and interviewing people. It's like this is just something else is happening here. What is it? Uh, so that's the point I'm at now. I mean, I'm, I know a lot of my friends still say, well, the government could have done it. They could have done it. And then, of course, if you say, you know, alien creatures from outer space came and did it, then sort of all bets are off. It's like, okay, they could do anything. If they had the superior technology that was, you know, a million years ahead of us or whatever. Yeah, and like a lot of these other things, there's no way to conclusively prove that. That's, right. a, that's a belief. Yep. That is a belief. But uh, it's hard to say, but the ufology, the UFO experience or whatever has interwoven itself so closely with the mutilations right now, it's hard to extricate it. It's a, it's a part of the mythology. It's uh, part of the archetype. It's part of the meme. Uh, it's very, very hard to, to extricate those two things, no matter what the actual physical evidence is. Uh, people are, have gone down that road in, in their belief systems. So that's kind of where we're at at the moment here. And I'm, I'm trying to come up with other possibilities. And uh, I think as many of my colleague researchers are looking at other, other avenues, and I see it a lot you know, in, in recent times, you and others uh, are talking about more I don't know, paraphysical is a word that comes around. Uh, something that's sort of material and sort of not. And maybe having something to do with our conscious consciousness or the consciousness of the planet or any number of what they call the psychosocial school of research. It was popular in Europe. It still is much more than our more literal way of looking at things here in the United States. But is there value to that? Because I talk to people and they're like, well, there's all this psychological mumbo jumbo. And I was saying, but your experience of reality or whatever it is, is psychological mumbo jumbo. Right. Yes. yes. <laughs> if so, you, once you start looking at it you know, yeah. and say, well, wait a minute, why do I believe that? Why do I think that? And you realize it's a bunch of mumbo jumbo <laughs> that you've been <laughs> accepting for years uncritically. So uh, am I position now is that everything has to be re-examined. Every single thing that got us to this point, politically, socially, uh, ecologically, uh, what I call the, the great reckoning, you know, and that, that every belief system really needs to be thoroughly turned upside down and examined from another point of view. Mm -hmm. All of your biases need to come out on the table, and you got to re you know reckon with them, and wh where you got those biases, and uh, 
how valid are they really? Yeah. What are your biases right now? Like when you when because I know what mine are. Mine is right. immediately going to what are people thinking? How are they thinking about no. it? What is the interaction between yeah. those different thought processes? How does that create the reality of the truth of the matter, quote unquote, for something that cannot be testable? Um, yeah, the, these are all important uh, well, aspects of of trying to understand this to me, and yes. you, and you can't really. I mean, you can't understand it by being literal, and you can't really understand it hundred percent by being uh, uh, symbolic either. So maybe there's a uh, yeah, yeah. there's a middle road between these. Yeah, things. That's, that's a good way of putting it. I, I like that, and uh, I, I admit my bias right now is toward the environment. I would say toward uh, when I go look at a mulated cow, what it's saying to me is there's something about our environment that's out of whack here. You know, yeah. Here's an animal, and Chris keeps making this point, O'Brien. It's like, where else in, in paranormal research do you have a thousand pounds of, you know, rotting meat evidence lying there? Everything else is, pretty much everything else is some light in the sky or somebody's interpretation of their experience or... Right, or, or footprints or whatever. Or something, yeah. But here it's over and over and over, hundreds, thousands of these animals plop in the environment. So, uh, that's... To me, that's saying, when I look at it, and my visceral feeling of it, intuitive feeling, is this has something to do with the environment. What is it? Uh, and Chris O'Brien, I think, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think he, he looks at it like, and when he sees this, like something in, indicates to him that there's some sort of sacrificial aspect to this. Something's being sacrificed. <laughs> anyway, so we got biases. uh uh, I'm just advocating that people come to grips with their biases and realize, put them out on the table and not have them be hidden. Yeah. Because uh, that's when problems arise. If you just acknowledge, okay, I'm biased against the extraterrestrial hypothesis for this, this, and this reason. And I have many reasons. However, you get to a point where you can't ever really rule that out. Yes, exactly. I have that problem, too, and people say, yeah. well, you're against aliens and the extraterrestrial. It's like, no, I don't. I just think it's one of a few possibilities, and concentrating on it closes off those other possibilities. That's the attitude. Not people have this very binary view. If you're not for right, something, right. you must be against it. Yeah, and that that's not the case. Well, it's not satisfying to some people because the uh, UFO believers, I call them. I yep. don't know what else to call them. Uh, I don't think they're looking at all the evidence. I think they're uh, what. They're operating out, out of something that's more classically a, a belief system, a religion, even. And there have been people who have written the books about yeah. UFO as the new, as a kind of a new age religion. It's taken taken over from Christianity in aspects, and it has uh, a lot in common with uh, you know, belief in unseen things and unseen forces and powers in the heavens and things that direct human destiny and. Yeah, and it's got that nice technological, scientific aspect right. edge of it that they're flying here in ships that are right. very yes. advanced. And yeah, it 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 fills it ticks a lot of the boxes. It does. It ticks a whole lot, and I, I could see why it would be so attractive to to so many people. Uh, but uh, that doesn't, uh, you know, that's not my particular persuasion. But uh, it's certainly fascinating, and I think the table has been set by science fiction. 
uh, to accept that in, in many ways. Uh, that meme has been cooking right along for a long time. The belief in uh, other worlds. I, I, some of my writings, I trace it all the way back to way BC in Greece, mm -hmm. the plurality of worlds. Yeah, other humans are entities on other planets doing similar things that we're doing here. Yeah, and it wasn't something about the gods. Right. That was us. That was something directly yeah. connected with our destiny. This was something on another world, and, you know, they, they, they theorized that there were things on other worlds, and that's, that stuff's been written about for a long time. You said it really came home to roost, at least for us, in the 20th century war of the worlds, among other things. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. So that, what, what I call uh, memeplexes developed. Mm -hmm. A memeplex being, first of all, just to, re, to define meme, just in case people... Please. Uh, this is a concept, it's, it's used a lot in, in modern technology, actually. Uh, people, it's on the internet all the time. Here, get this meme, this meme. So that this was Richard Dawkins, the evolutionary biologist, uh, came up with the idea of the selfish gene, and then he postulated this other item, which he called a meme. It was kind of a play on gene, and, and that was the uh, the cultural equivalent of the gene. In other words, the gene drives biological evolution, and the meme drives cultural evolution. Uh, so, <coughs> excuse me. So the, a meme is anything that can be passed from one brain to another. It can be something as simple as a silly little jingle you hear as in advertising or something. You just can't get it out of your head. And then you go hum it to somebody else and then they get it, it's in their head. And then it's, you know, some people call it a mind contagion. But I, I think that's... <laughs> That's unnecessarily uh, putting it in disrepute. It's just a mechanism how information is conveyed in a culture from person to person. I think that has what I call survival value for the culture because it creates cohesive uh, social groups, yeah. which uh, you know, would be advantageous from a survival strategy point of view. In terms of evolution, so a meme is anything that just gets passed along. It really has no positive or negative uh, connotation, according to the way Dawkins saw. The whole concept kind of got away from him. I think he got a bit, you know, he's like, I didn't exactly mean it that way. Uh, so he backtracked on it. And of course, I think I call him a neo-Darwinist. And this is a group of uh, people that say. There is no such thing as cultural evolution. <laughs> that uh, this is kind of a pointless exercise with this meme business because it's all a matter of random biological processes. Yes, yeah. yes. So uh, now the other side of that coin is uh, teleological, uh, which means uh, it's culture or civilization is heading towards some sort of endpoint. It has a goal. It has a purpose. It has uh, it's, it's heading towards some singularity or omega point or something. That everything's moving us toward that. And that implies that it has certain religious overtones, of course, and that's why the hardcore evolutionists, uh, neo-Darwinists, reject that idea. Uh, because they think it, has, it smacks too much of belief and Religion, religion, and, yeah. yeah, and not science. So, 
I I tend to think I tend to think there is a teleological goal here, and I don't know what it is. Who would? But yeah. It what uh, what brought you to that? Reading, Biases. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> Reading Teilhard de Chardin, people uh-huh. like that, uh-huh. and Bergson, and uh, it just looks to me like that's what's happening. It's moving toward greater and greater complexity. Uh, we're on the verge of becoming a space-faring civilization. We've got somewhere to go. We got goals. Uh, whether the, what to me it doesn't exactly in the classic understanding of teleology, it's a, the goal is a you know, final union between of all things into a divine entity of some sort or state of being. Yeah. Uh, so I don't necessarily see it that way. I just see it's going somewhere. Something's trying to move in a certain direction. Uh, I see it around me. I see it in myself. And I think, you know, things are moving toward a self-actualization state. Uh, so I tend to subscribe to that. That is a bias, I would say. I don't think it's just all random. But then again, you know, I'm a, as Stephen Hawking uh declared himself a devout atheist. (laughs) (laughs) But I I don't even like that word, you know. Well, these are are all words. Words determine how we think about things. Uh, And that uh, if you really think about it, there's a a case to be made for um, how we think about things determine, well, that's not a case. I think this is my idea. How we think about things determines how those things are. Even yes. ultimately with things like laboratory experiments and things. I saw a great quote uh, that you had in one of your um, introductions. I think it was either Stalking the Trickster or um, to one of Chris's books. But you talked about, uh, I can't remember who it was, visiting CERN, talking oh, yeah. to a few, yeah. few of the scientists. And one of them said, we are creating what we seek to find. Yeah. And this was Lyle Watson. Right. I'm glad you brought him up because he was a big influence on me. Uh, as someone who uh, is a polymath, he has like six PhDs or something, you know. Uh, interestingly enough, I think of people like that. I've been to maybe a hundred UFO conferences, probably more. I've never heard his name mentioned once. He's, oh, great. Now i got to bring him up tomorrow when I talk. <laughs> <laughs> and I've only heard Carl Jung's name mentioned one time. Mm-hmm. And that was only because he was corresponding with Donald Kehoe. Right. Uh, otherwise, nothing about archetypes or you know, mythology or collective unconscious, any of that was just never. Right. Uh, so, anyway, Lyle Watson, uh, I think that was in his book, Lifetide. I can't remember for sure, but uh, he went to CERN. And talk to the physicists who were, you know, bombarding particles and trying to find all these uh, new subatomic particles, which they did. But the, one of the physicists said, uh, told him, like, I, he called them manifestations, which I thought was a, a very important word. So these are manifestations. And uh, I use that word a lot now. And I, I think it's appropriate. I think it fits a whole lot of what we're talking about. By, okay, what's your definition of a manifestation? It's something coming from an, one realm and appearing in another realm, basically. Uh, Maybe in a way that we have determined or can understand it. 
Well, in a way that we have, like, maybe co-created. You get to back to your your way of thinking. Uh, it's somehow in that interaction. The interaction becomes the meaning. Yeah, so and it's... And we mistake it for the reality. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's, you know, the manifestation happened, and then he then the physicist went on to add that uh, perhaps we're creating that which we seek to find. And... If you carry that over into, say, UFO research, uh, maybe we're creating or co-creating that which we seek to find. Yeah. So you've got to play with your quantum physics there a little bit, and the bottom line there would be, you know, it's a participatory universe, is what John Wheeler, the physicist. Yes, I bring that up in my right. uh, information theory part of my talk. Yeah, and I think you and others, I think, are on this track right now, which I think is very healthy. I think if we're seeking understanding, yeah, uh, about how that really works, because it's impossible, really, if you study quantum physics, to separate uh, the observer and the observed, observed, yeah. observer and the observed, and the line is blurred there. Uh, yeah. So, to be aware of that, and I became aware of that through first-hand experiences in the field. <laughs> and then I, I started realizing, like, oh, wait, and it was kind of spooky, because there was just a whole series of things that... Uh, I, 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 will be, I will be very normal radio and say, ask you to describe a couple of those, but well, please go on. I, I call... Uh, it, it taught me what I... What I learned about it was that, uh, what... The, name, uh, what the term idioplastic means. In I haven't words, heard that one. Idioplastic? I, uh, I could guess, but please. Yeah. Well, it's uh, the phenomena responds to your ideology, to yourself, to your cultural beliefs, to your expectations. It reflects back, back what you're bringing to, yeah. you, to some extent. Right, so it's idioplastic. Yeah. Uh, it's, I guess and then it says it. not quite when you, put all, when you plug right. all that into <laughs> right. it. Right. <laughs> So, uh, just one thing after another. Uh, I, I was, well, the very first time I think I became aware of it was going to Ellsbury, Missouri in 1978 with a couple of researchers. They were having mutilations, they were having UFO sightings, they were having Bigfoot sightings, and all kinds of other strange stuff. And I thought, and we stayed there a week, and we interviewed everybody and sat out in the fields and stuff. Uh, and last night we were there, the activity seemed to be centering around this microwave tower. It's up on a little hill in a, hmm. in a meadow. So we camped out in the woods at the edge of the microwave tower, by the tower, and said, well, if anything's going to happen, we'll see it. And so we took turns at staying up two hours at a time, watching the field, never taking our eyes off the field. So we get up and I'm like, eh, nothing happened, we didn't see anything, there's nothing out there. All right, we're leaving town, you know. And then I called back, I think it was the next day, to the marshal I'd been in touch with. And he said, wow, you guys left a little early. You didn't see the mutilated cow. And I said, what mutilated cow? Well, we found a mutilated cow in that field where you were camped out. You didn't see it? He's like, no, we didn't see it. It was right near you. Yeah. It wasn't where you were looking. It was, we were looking at the field. Uh-huh. And where he described it and... Was in full view of where you were. In full view, and I, I was like, "Oh my God, really?" Uh, now, of course, you could say that was just an amazing coincidence, 
or, or everybody was really unobservant, which is kind of right. <laughs> we all swore that we didn't doze for one second. We just sat there and watched that field all night long. Uh, so then that started me thinking, it's like, oh my God, either whatever's behind this is aware of us as doing this just to mess with our minds, you know, or somehow we participated in its creation somehow. And that started me on a track of endless number of things like that. I won't go into all of it now, but I'm just using it as an example of uh, the kind of thing that just starts you moving in another direction. Uh, can I go back to Ellsbury one moment? Back to Ellsbury just a little bit? Yes. Uh, just a little more on Ellsbury. Um, the whole town was into this whatever was going on. They were a little spooked by it, the mutilations. And they, they made up these t-shirts that said, <laughs> Welcome to Ellsbury, Missouri, mutilated cow country. And it had a picture of a little alien hanging out of a UFO with a knife and with a cow's leg dripping blood and a cow down below with its leg missing. And I was like, wow, okay. This is their claim to fame, you know. Yeah, it's, 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 well, it was gallows humor to be able to deal with it in yeah, some way. I, I, that's a good point. I think, yeah, you have to sort of take it that way. But they weren't really afraid of it. In fact, they go themselves and park along the roads every night where these things were happening. And I have a picture of one of these orange globes that was seen near mutilation. It's not, you know, it's a orange ball in the sky. <laughs> you know, yes, right Th those, are, those happen in a lot of places, not yeah. just cattle mutilation area. Right. So, uh, but in our poking around, and I have no reason to believe that these people were lying, uh, the marshal and the editor of the paper and the prominent people in the town, they were baffled by it and what's going on. So uh, in, in our poking around, we came across reports of what they call Momo, which is a... The Missouri big, monster. Yeah, it's a Bigfoot, basically. Another variety of Bigfoot. <laughs> <laughs> there he is now. Come on, Ola. Uh, no, we can move inside or we can stop for a little bit. What is, she, is she chopping wood? No, it's just... Uh, <laughs> uh, no, go ahead. It just adds a little character. <laughs> uh, okay, so we got... The Bigfoot was uh, seen by several people uh, picking through trash at the dump. And uh, also then another group of people say, well, we saw this this group uh, down somewhere in the dump vicinity at another point. Uh, little, what, it looked like kids in silver suits. And they were poking around doing something or other. What, daylight? Daylight. Huh. Kids in silver suits. Hmm. Flying saucers, Bigfoot, mutilations. Uh, then another guy, other several other people actually said they were fishing at the uh, Mississippi River one night, and I guess they had enough light to see what was going on on the river, but I don't, don't remember the time. But they said uh, they saw these uh, six what looked like 55-gallon drums floating down the river kind of in formation. And... Then they got about even where the guys were fishing, and the barrels just rose up together and flew off into the sky. <laughs> <laughs> that makes no sense whatsoever. Also, it just doesn't sound like anything somebody would just make up. They would make more sense of it. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, but that was the kind of stuff we were picking up. And I'm writing in my note, field notes, like, barrels rose in the sky, flew up into the sky. It's like, yeah, I get home, I go over, it's like, this is insane. What is this? What is going on here? Uh, because it was a real challenge to the, any kind of rational analysis of the whole situation. And again, I, I had to rule out, you know, fabrications. It, 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 there was just too many people that, you know, that weren't in touch with each other. It wasn't a liar's club. It was uh, just typical citizens who were very baffled by what was going on there. It's like a Mothman type story. Yeah, yeah. It was one of those places where uh, they're kind of flap areas we call them, you know. But uh, once you, everything happens. Yeah. So you get poltergeist the, activity in people's houses, everything. Yeah. So then uh, this gets back a little bit to my description of the meme flex, which is you have a meme like. People on other planets, for starters. And that gathers up some steam and it gets uh, a, uh, other memes attached to it and becomes what I call a meme flex that uh, feed the original meme, plus it helped, you know, their connection with the original meme helps sustain them, the many memes I call them. Uh, so then you get this giant, by the time we are here now, we have a giant meme plex, which are all of these things, the Bigfoot. You know, the so-called cryptids, uh, then unidentified, unknown creatures that appear to be here and not here. Uh, we've got such, you know, vectors as uh, abductions or alien writing or, I don't know, any number of, of uh, contactees. And the, you know, all of those things have created this gigantic meanplex, which has enormous power in the culture. So that's that's the kind of type of analysis that I'm using. I, I always consider myself really a cultural historian. That's what I was trained in, you know, mm -hmm. American studies and political science. So I'm interested in cultural phenomena, cultural uh, actions, or how things sway the culture. Uh, so without necessarily passing judgment on what the actual phenomenon was, it's like what effect did it have? Sort of working backwards. Yeah. As I tell people, I use the, the fort thing, picking up an existence by its frogs. we yeah. we got we to gotta look at what it's doing first, not guess at what it is. Um, yeah. What is it doing, exactly? <clears throat> uh, so I'm looking at it and saying, if you look at the... I was looking last night at the polls about American public and their belief in UFOs. From what I can gather, it really hasn't changed that much in many, many years. It's like 50% believe it. Aliens are here. And flying saucers are real. 50% don't. More or less. Is that your, your finding? Have you studied any of those polls? Mm, not recently. Yeah. I, would, I would figure they have gone up. According to some skeptical friends of mine, it probably have gone way up. What part of it has gone up? The, uh, the belief? Just belief, yeah, beliefs in, in yeah, those well, things. Yeah, well, I had assumed that, too. But just the one I saw last night, it was, it's that same 50%. I guess it depends what they're asking, who's doing the asking, yeah. and, you know, a few other factors. And the question was, are UFOs real, which is kind of a rough poll question. Real what? You know, what, and what is real? Yeah. Uh, oh, I hate those polls. And then 29% uh, of the public said that the U.S. government has had contact with UFOs, with aliens. I guess I think it was actually worded that way. Uh, so, you got one-third of the people thinking the government is in contact 
with alien entities. Mm-hmm. And now, anytime you get those kind of numbers, you get a 50%, you even get a 30% in American society, and politics in particular, <laughs> this starts to be an issue. Yes. It's not some little... It's not a fringe. It's not a fringe. And it's it's a culturally held mutual belief amongst millions of people. Yeah. And what is it capable of doing? I don't know. Uh, well, you did say, you did give me that quote, and it was in one of your intros too. Don't don't uh, believe anything until it's sufficiently denied. Right. <laughs> so this is partially the government's fault for doing for yeah. being lying over and over and over and over again to the point where. People will say, wow, I, you know, they're lying about this, and I think there's a very strong evidence for it, so it must right. be true. Yeah, right. So it's, it's just incredible backwash. And, then, you know, I can see how somebody in the government wanted to get into some mythological engineering or social engineering of sorts, so developing belief systems. You were talking about it last night somewhat, for whatever purposes to be used at a later point, perhaps. When would it be beneficial to... Whip it out and say, "Hey, we've been, you know, the president's been talking to aliens over, you know, Kerlin Air Force Base. Fifty percent of the people might be inclined to believe you, you know. Uh, and what you could do with that as uh, political action, who knows? It's just something to keep an eye on. It hasn't, yeah. it hasn't really been. Yeah, you could you could vector something by it, um, whether whether it's something direct like we have to protect ourselves from the aliens or." Um, vectoring that belief to affect some other part of policy. Yes. Um, exactly. That's what I'm kind of worried about with the TTS thing. TTS? The, the Tom DeLonge, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. that group. Uh, and then, when, you know, the other day, Trump comes out and says, we're creating a whole new branch of the military, the Space Force. Yeah. It's like, what is the Space Force going to do exactly? <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, they made the point on the, on the news. That it's like, it's well, a meme. There's already a U.S. Space Command or whatever it's yes. called that, that employs something like 35,000 people. Yeah, I think it, it was or is a branch of the Air Force. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what the lineage is there, but I think so. Uh, or NORAD connection or something. I'm not, yeah, I'd like to know more about that. I have to look into it. But, uh, so anyway, we're getting a Space Force created in the middle of everything else. So I'm just saying that these belief systems can be manipulated. The mythology can be manipulated. Public opinion can be manipulated. And it's usually not for good ends. Uh, but uh, my, where I arrived at, uh, you know, at a certain point was uh, at what I called it my ev- evolutionary imperative theory back in the 80s. This was sort of after I'd given up on the government or... ETs is behind any of this. And to me, I was looking at it as the memes. Why do we... Why is this meme so popular? And I put it, uh, looked at it through the lens of evolutionary psychology. And it's like the idea of uh, survival strategies of species. <clears throat> and uh, generally, those are thought of as something that they, it's in the conscious realm. You know, it's like we, if we all band together, uh, we can fight off these uh, giant, whatever, saber-toothed tigers. We have a better chance than fight. You know. So we have to do things that develop social cohesion and uh, have myths and belief systems that we can share that keep that social cohesion, which adds to our survival, it's part of our survival strategy and adds to our 
possibility of surviving. So I started looking, it's like, what is any of this stuff fit? And it seems to me that if we we're going to be a space-faring civilization, that we would, uh, that is a survival strategy as far as I'm concerned. And we do a lot of things that are consciously toward that goal. We fund all these space programs and do all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. But what I'm looking at is an unconscious survival strategies, uh, where it's possible that human collective unconscious, if you accept that idea, uh, realizes that we're not so bright in some ways that we need a little prodding, you know, from the, more of our unconscious side. And that's why we develop a lot of, you know, science fiction and <clears throat> all these other avenues where the idea is we, be, we become accustomed to the idea that we will be a spacefaring civilization mm -hmm. and Captain Kirk will have fist fights with aliens on the bridge of the Enterprise right <laughs> it's like the Wild West yeah. we're gonna get out there and yeah the communicator is right here right on my phone yeah uh, so I'm looking at it is it possible that we could have these undercurrents uh, through the collective unconscious that are also part of that survival strategy process of, of allowing us and making us, enabling us as an apex species to get this whole shoot and match off the earth where we're not so vulnerable to having it all wiped out in one life-ending second by an asteroid or something. So it's sort of like one of these things you're talking about that lies in the back of your mind you know is true but you haven't really Except, you don't want to really acknowledge it for right. very many uh, right. overt conscious reasons. So we were being nudged along, I'm just saying, toward that that goal, I see. Mm -hmm. and, and it's some sort of imperative of the human race and all life on, on the planet, basically, is to propagate and fill every ding-dong space that could possibly be filled with any kind of life that can adapt to it, whether it's a volcanic event or whatever. The most extreme... So we're being propelled by this force. I hate to even use words like force and energy and all this because it's just so. Well, difficult. you're 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 talking about teleological. Well, in this way, uh, maybe it's not quite the same as teleology. It's more nuts and bolts. It's like, okay, we're <laughs> gonna, we're going to go out there in these ships. We're going to make them here. We're going to fly over to Mars. We're going to start a whole colony on Mars. We're going to bring all our life forms over there and their DNA and let them propagate and do it. You know, mm -hmm. kind of spread out gene pool so we're not so vulnerable to losing it all in one swipe and I think that is a survival strategy consciously and I think there's that's being propelled also unconsciously right and it could be through avenues like ufology and contact and abductions and other areas kind of gray, oh, I see. Yeah. gray areas that aren't you know it's not like as overt as a science fiction movie but it's part of the, this undercurrent it's even, you know, with a lot of people, it's even stronger than a science fiction movie because what, the, what science fiction fans get mad at, uh, make fun of UFO fans for, is you think this is real, there's something wrong with you. And yeah. for, for, a, uh, for a UFO group or somebody that's interested in it or somebody searching around on the internet, it's way more powerful than science fiction because to them, yeah. to people, it actually is a real thing right. that's being hidden from us or whatever. Um, and it seems almost self-evident to them that there's aliens here doing these things because that's all they're bombarded with and interested in. And but yeah, as a as a as a meme, yeah. um, 
that that that's uh, that's like for people that don't want the soft core stuff. They really want the, right. the hardcore quote unquote reality. Yeah. Well, a good point. Yes. Is that an airplane? No, it's it's a truck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm looking at that. I you know that's the, the the evolutionary imperative theory that it's somehow our role to get us off this planet. And this is only speaking in mechanistic terms, really. Yeah. Uh, it's not exactly teleology in that respect. <clears throat> That's more of a uh, metaphysical concept, as far as I'm concerned. But it also has, you know, a real tangible side to it too. But uh, so if we're going to get out there and do these things, I don't know. This is an aside, but I was just remember talking to uh, what's this guy, Tori Musgrave, the Story Musgrave. Story Musgrave, right? Yeah. Uh, the conference astronaut. He's been, I think, in space more than anybody in terms of hours. And uh, I had a little side talk with him. And I said, how did you train yourself to be weightless so so much? And he said, well, I turned my TV upside down, for starters. <laughs> <laughs> and I got used to watching it upside down because everything gets turned around. Uh, but anyway, that's not relevant at the moment. But uh, I, I said... What is actually going to be the biggest inhibitor or roadblock for us to become a space-bearing civilization? It's the cosmic rays. That's the thing. Because they they destroy biology. Yeah. Uh, And sometime later I saw a report that said, oh, we finally figured out how to stop cosmic rays. Styrofoam. And I went, What? Really? I mean, lead. They'll get, they'll get through the, the hull of a spaceship, but not through styrofoam. Right. And I thought, boy, finally, a, a good use for styrofoam. <laughs> yeah, but that's what George a, Carlin's joke, uh, that the, earth, the reason we have plastic is because the Earth wanted plastic. I don't care about us. Earth just wanted plastic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And now we I have, mean, it's a joke, but it, it's, yeah, it hooks I mean, into what you're saying, to get off the planet anyway. Right. But, I mean, it's just one of those kind of ironies that you just think, you know, everybody hates styrofoam, but then it turns out to be the thing that saved him, the human race and all life on Earth. Uh, I like, wow, okay, I didn't see that coming. Hey, it'd be a lot lighter to lift off the Earth than yeah, <laughs> metal ships. It's actually uh, quite conveniently light. <laughs> uh, so, I, I mean, you know, I, I like the, the little ironies that come along in this business. They tickle me no end. But uh, I kind of have progressed then past the straight ev- you know, evolutionary uh, imperative idea that it's somehow we're driven unconsciously and consciously to get out and get spread out this gene pool. I have all this stuff that's been developed supposedly by natural selection over millions of years. All of this DNA and all the species of every variety. It's amazing. How much there is, uh, but if that's going to survive, it's counting on us. If we're the apex species in this, the keystone species in this whole game, and we have we put ourselves there? Have we been put there? We've been nurtured and cultivated for millions of years to do this by some force, or energy, or intelligent design, or what? Yeah, or if you go with some people's ideas, it was seeded here intentionally or not. Yeah. Oh, by the way, what's your thinking on seeding? 
Um, not enough evidence, but compelling and fun thing to think about. Um, I did tell you earlier that I've got this idea from Alan Watts where he said, you know, watch out because if there's rocks someday, there's going to be people. Right. I think in some certain sense, there is an inherent consciousness in matter, and that matter will, <laughs> that matter will uh, eventually, given the right amount of time and circumstances, uh, develop self-awareness and then perpetuate itself as we've been talking about. That's right, yeah, yeah. and the, and our attempts to personify that is 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 a lot of the basis of at least of Western religion, right? Uh, I like that a lot. I mean, because it fits into the Gaia theory, which is kind of where I'm going with this now, and yeah, that every single thing has a role in this web of life, and that organic matter and inorganic matter have a way of interacting to create the ideal conditions for life on Earth at all times. It has for millions of years. And it's always stayed right in this range. The stasis, no matter what yeah. happened with how much cosmic right. radiation or... Sun it gets 30% brighter, it doesn't matter. Our oxygen level stays just the same. Everything stays right in that homeostasis zone, which is the ideal for life on the planet. Somehow, the, you know, the organic and inorganic have combined... Yeah, they, they, they somehow work together. ...to create... And, and I don't know if the inorganic is is the is the uh, un, unconscious operant in this. It's probably a well, interaction. Yeah, even uh, back to Lyle Watson again. I don't know if you ever read the book, The Secret Life of Inanimate Objects. No, but I know of it. It's a great book. Well, in our in organic chemistry, you you cannot assign any any organic. Yeah. Uh, you can't assign anything to it. just because organic doesn't mean it's conscious. Right. Yeah. So, but I, I'm just saying that. But the, the but, what, yeah, the main we, idea is so how how does this how does it? Uh, why is it that this homeostasis has been going on for billions of years? Yeah, and that's the beauty of Gaia theory, uh, that it's somehow that there there is a controlling intelligence. I hate to use the word, but something has uh, it's it's sentient, perhaps it's intelligent, it's purposeful, uh, it's effective. <laughs> Yes. Uh, so, my thinking then is like, well, wait a minute. Um, hmm, I can see how I can kind of get how the human collective unconscious could do things, could manipulate uh, our perceptions and our myths and our memes, move the memes around and get this right. and that. Because done. there's there's a conscious operant in that. Right. Right. But then I'm thinking, well, can and the line between organic and inorganic matter is blurred. What's animate and what's really inanimate is like now. Lyle Watson really draws that, you know, the conclusion. Saying, "Wait a minute, you thought that was just a rock? Are you sure that's just a rock? What that rock is doing is it's eroding just a little bit of minerals into the ocean every time it rains, a minuscule amount of that particular rock, which happens to keep the salinity and the balance of the ocean at just exactly the right temperature and conditions for life there." And so that rock, you know, just by eroding a few molecules and it all adds up. I mean, and so you start seeing this giant interconnectedness of everything. So that I'm, I'm even questioning now when people use the term like uh, non-human intelligence. It's like, well, wait a minute. Uh, where do you draw the line? Uh, what is truly non-human at this point? Maybe unfamiliar intelligence? Right. <laughs> well, that's what I call uh, un recognize forces of nature uh, and I know that sounds mechanistic 
and it probably is, but... Uh, oh, I, good. You led me into uh, one of the other questions. Well, I'm politely calling them unrecognized forces of nature, because I think that's what they are. Uh, and it, that doesn't mean that... The, it just means they're unrecognized, <laughs> that we're not recognizing what our true role is and what is actually affecting us uh, in terms of our our being, our decisions, uh, our beliefs. And I think there's some sort of gap here, and nobody's really entered into this gap uh, that I've seen in the realm of ufology and paranormal research. Now we have people like Terrence McKenna and Jacques Vallée, and they both floated this idea, each of them separately, about, uh, with Vallée, for instance, he said, uh, UFOs are part of a control system. And I think people immediately misunderstood what he said. They, they misinterpreted as yes, saying that... Aliens are here to control right. us. Right. What he was talking about was a scientific concept, is that it's a control system like as in a thermostat, mm -hmm. uh, which is... His, his analogy, as I recall, was uh, when things uh, get too out of balance on Earth, uh, that these um, saucers, or whatever you want to call them, yes. uh, they're projected by the collective unconscious into the mix to right the balance. When things get too out of whack uh, in one way or the other, generally toward being too rational, you know, uh, too uh, logical, too... This is moving into tricksterish territory. Yes, it is. Uh, that's why I'm surprised that Valet hasn't run with the trickster idea. But okay, so you got the idea that he's he just casually kind of throws this idea out. It's like, oh yeah, they're produced by the environment uh, as a control mechanism and as kind of thermostat on human affairs. It's like, okay, produced by the environment. What are you talking about? What environment? Where? How? You can't just casually say that and not follow it up. But he did. Uh, and Terrence McKenna did the same thing. And, and because I think they're being oblique about it for other people to push that idea further. I think well, that's part of it. It seems like a pretty important idea. And nobody's really pushing it. I'm trying to push it. To say, we've got to take a look at this. Uh, McKenna said a similar kind of thing. He, he uh, I had a little getaway seminar with him for a couple of days up in the mountains shortly before he died. And uh, it was really interesting. But he's in his writings, he, he said... Uh, that it's uh, basically the same thing Valet said, that it's of the environment that's uh, being produced, and he was saying it, it happens when things get out of whack and science becomes too dominant at the expense of ethics. Yeah. Uh, and that's when something like the saucers appear, and it's like, oh, wait a minute, and people go back the other, swing back the other way, and it gets back to what he calls the confounding, which I love that concept. Uh, that uh, once science becomes too dominant, it needs to be confounded. Yes. Uh, Presented with things that don't fit that paradigm right, right. exactly. Uh, don't lock in. You know, uh, the lock doesn't fit the key. Uh, the key doesn't fit the lock anymore exactly. So uh, again, he doesn't say how this is exactly emanates from the collective unconscious or the earth or the environment or any of that. This is just left as a blank space with both of those guys. So you're me, trying to fill it up a little bit. I'm trying to get in there and root around in there because it's so fascinating to me. 
and it's really difficult to get at. I mean, geez, how, you know, can't even prove that there's a guy in mind. You can't even really prove that there's a collective unconscious. Right. I've had people say, there's more proof that for aliens than there is for the collective unconscious. It's like, well, you're kind of right in some ways, you know, because it's so elusive. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm, I'm advocating that the trickster is actually an unrecognized force in nature. And that's these articles I've written about George Hansen's book, The Trickster and the Paranormal. I know you had him on your show. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wrote a couple of reviews back when the book came out and was in contact with him. And I would like to emphasize to anybody who's listening to get his book, The Trickster and the Paranormal, because it's such an important book uh, about tricksterism and how that fits into any of these studies. And, and he and I got, a, you know, separated our thinking a little bit because I, I told him my idea that the trickster was actually a force of biology. And that mm. was, there was, of the environment, there was some, there was an elemental, as they're sometimes called, that uh, goes into any, it's an energy, I hate to use the word, that... Uh, he thinks it, you're taking it too literally in some yes, sense? Yes, yes. Yeah. So he says that's scientism, and it's too mechanistic, and it, uh, it contributes to disenchanting the world. And I thought about that a long time. You know, it is mechanistic. Uh, it's looking at for biology for specific uh, markers, markers, forces, mechanisms, evidence, machine type. <laughs> you know, here this is a part of our. It's an unrecognized force of nature that is active when it's needed. Okay. As yeah. part of that Gaia idea of keeping the whole thing in homeostasis and perfectly fit for everything that's there. Yeah. So I was calling it a, basically a biological entity that uh, is anti-structural in the same way that Valet and McKenna had discussed it, to go in there and deconstruct. Yeah. How could it be a biological entity, or is it a is it an inherent property of bio, of some types of biology when it is needed to emerge and create uh, yeah. uh, unease, or if something is too balanced or too strong, actually too strong in one area to tip that balance a little bit? Because uh, yeah. uh, Hansen said, you know, the balance is never exact. Right. There's one part of the balance that's more powerful, yeah. and that's how the stasis happens. But sometimes it gets way right. out of whack, and he says the trickster is almost like a, a thermostat, yep. if I'm understanding it properly. Yeah, yeah. So if you have a biological basis for this, are you saying this is an inherent property of a biology where it will activate when needed? Sort of. Am I, am I understanding yeah, it correctly? Yes, yes. I, I think that is correct. No. I think it, uh, it's inherent. But... Uh, Everybody puts a little disclaimer on their, on their theories, right? <laughs> and they kind of have to. Well, the here's the one that they say he'll go through, Hansen or other people I've seen do the same thing. And then they say, of course, it could develop a life of its own. It's like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> you know? What is then it? they're moving. He is moving into your area. Well, it's sort of like. Uh, a little. You know what it reminds me of, Greg, is. Uh, Alexander David Neal and the Tulpas, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't—I never did know what to make of that story until I always considered it an apocryphal story. Yeah, but uh, and I think people, she told it in more than one form, I think. Yeah, but the, the, the outline of it, I guess, it, magic and mystery in Tibet or whatever. Yeah, uh, she creates the little Buddhist monk, 
through the Tulpa process of uh, creating an entity which would help her carry her heavy belongings through the mountains, right? It was manifest, materialized as a little monk, strong little guy who would carry her stuff around. And uh, that worked out pretty good for a while. And then apparently the Tulpa developed its own, a life of its own. It wasn't just a slave to her anymore. It had its own will. Oh, no, the robot developed sentience. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, no. And so then it got uh, quarrelsome and argumentative and didn't want to carry the stuff around. And then she said uh, she had to get rid of it, and it took a long time for her to... De- and she needed help. ...detulpaize it, dematerialize it. And she did that apparently through this ritual or mentally what however she did it i don't know but so anyway it's an example of okay so this tulpa is a thought form that comes into our so material reality and uh does whatever it does and then it either dissolves this because it's not needed or it's dissolved because it's not wanted uh, but it's a thought form it's a materialized thought form so I, I see parallels there between what you're talking about with the trickster. It's like, we don't really... I mean, I'm sure the Greeks weren't thinking in these terms when they th- thought about Hermes and uh, people like, you know, the trickster characters who were sort of the inter- intermediaries of the gods, and they ran back and forth and uh, created mayhem and turned things upside down for a while and destabilized it, and then it got restabilized again. They receded into the background. To me, that's a... That's biology. That's survival strategies. That's uh, trying to keep the cohesion of at least human society in some sort of balance and not let it get out of whack. That's what Ballet and McKenna were driving at. And so, uh, whether where that comes from, I, 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 it's a big leap to go from the collective unconscious to the Gaian conscious. Mm-hmm. And then it's, then it's an even bigger leap to go to the Gaian unconscious. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's even bigger leap to go to does I asked I guess it was Rupert Sheldrake I don't remember does Gaia dream you know and he's like oh, don't ask me such silly questions right. but uh, I think it was that guy Abrahams I can't remember his first name did the book with McKenna and Sheldrake uh, anyway so then I, it reminds me of uh, some photos I was just looking at of these conventions where people would go dressed up as they were in another lifetime and then the Unarius society does yes, that Unarius. and then people after that were coming out and then there started to be a branch of psychology an offshoot that was analyzing people who thought they were abducted in another lifetime <laughs> right so, I didn't even know there was such a subculture right so I'm just saying that you know once you start introducing these other side vectors, it's like another lifetime epiphenomenon uh, of an epiphenomenon. Oh, wow, okay. Uh, so I mean, it's an endless, endless puzzle. But uh, I, I'm like you say, I'm advocating just let's take another look at Gaia mind, and I, I see in you know his current books and essays and people current thinking they call it a planetary poltergeist. You know these phenomena. I think that's a little. Glib. <laughs> you know? I was going to say reductionist, but that's better. Uh, or geopsyche. I like it a little bit better. I noticed that's been used lately. But 
nobody's entering into this realm. It's like, okay, if you're going to assign anything, even admit, to, you know, you can't deny that the Earth system science behind Gaia theory. It is proven. This is the way the whole thing works. How it got that way, I were not really yeah, sure. And, how yeah, and a Dawkins would put would say that's just the way things are, and there's yeah. no there's no uh, direction to it. But uh, right. you you would refute that and say it, it it is a system that is possibly conscious or definitely conscious. You know, not in a way we think of consciousness, yeah. but in a way of uh, has having a. Um, survival instinct or a, a purpose or something that's like that. what i'm thinking you know it's the survival instinct it's the vital force it's the uh vital alan or whatever yeah uh, alan vital it's the anima monday it's pantheism it's transcendentalism it's uh all of these have touched on this idea these uh way thought systems uh, so it's not like any new idea that the Earth has a soul, maybe, or at least it has some sort of functioning, or it has some sort of coherence that's allowing this all to happen. Yeah. And this is where James Lovelock ran into trouble, who came up with the Gaia theory in the first place. He and Lynn Margulis, biologist, and uh, he put out the, the Gaia theory, I guess, in the early 70s, and he got slammed, just completely slammed. By the scientists and people, you know, the, of course, the right wing of evangelicals saying this is a new ecological Satanism. <laughs> yeah, it's like, wait a minute, this is why these things are called conservative because they don't—they're afraid of their yeah. they're resistant to new ideas. I'm about afraid. That's you know, it's starting to get yeah psychological, but yeah. But uh, so then, the, even the science, of course, those idiots came out and you know said this is, and they, they were even still using this language. Uh, I noticed uh, one of Trump's appointees, I can't remember, for the environmental something or other, and she was saying, I can't remember exact terms, something like, Gaia theory, I'm paraphrasing, Gaia theory is the new religion for elite paganism. (laughs) Right? It's like, oh, I didn't realize we had to be worried about I didn't know that somebody in the administration would be up on these terms well, enough yeah. to say that. Yeah, I, I was kind of surprised, too, actually. And I was also surprised to hear somebody like Rush Limbaugh when you know the tsunami hit uh, uh, Hawaii. He said, well, maybe this is God's revenge or, or, or Gaia or something. I was like, what? He's talking about Gaia, you know? Yeah. And somebody else of that nature at the same time said, maybe this is the work of Gaia to get rid of you know, nuclear facilities. I mean, it, the fact that it's creeping in even on, the, on that group of people is astounding. Not that they even maybe know what they're exactly saying or talking about. Well, that, yeah, there's a, there, there is a plenty of examples of, let's take something somebody said, not really understand it too well, and apply it to what, the way we're thinking of it. Yeah. Um, that, that happens well, all the time. I'm sure that happens with your writings, with people writing about your stuff yeah. we're talking about. I could understand how they would say it was God's will to destroy this yeah, because but bringing the guy in, my, but not really like, understanding what that is. Right. So, but you got at least the, the original version. Yeah. So you got that group of people who just uh, knee jerk uh, say guy is no replacement for God, and and they and Lovelock eventually had to put out a statement. I'm sure it just really galled him. and says, "In no way am I saying that guy has any substitute for God, and uh, or is in any way sentient." 
Uh, and it's like, oh man, you, I wish you didn't have to say that. Yeah, because uh, it shuts some doors yeah, he, that he, shouldn't be shut. But if people are going to be rigid, right. you have to push back with a little rigidity, which is unfortunate. And then he came out with several articles in science magazines like, hey, people, hold it. You know, I was just, it was, it's a provisional theory. I've never, you know, and it's just a provisional theory. So that's my, my cop out now these days, too. It's like anything I do, it's like, hey, hey it's a provisional theory. And I've I, been copping out like that for years. <laughs> but your, your cop out is good. I like it because it's, it's, uh, you say it's a thought experiment. Yeah. You preface things and say, oh, okay, this, how about... We're playing with ideas here. Don't come down and say that right. I think that this is the way things are. Because I don't. Right. I think it's it's attractive to me at this time. And there's a syncretism that can be made between mm -hmm. all these things. That's why I talk to you and everybody else I have on this show. I've got a personal syncretism. I'm not even sure what the hell it is yet. But um, uh, there's a value in borrowing from all these traditions, ideas, people... And mm -hmm. seeing, because, you know, this is a question I was going to ask you about this, about the mutilation stuff, and that Chris said, and probably influenced by you a bit, none of it, none of it makes any sense if you just stick one idea on it. Right. And we can say that about any of the stuff, really, I talk about yeah. on my show. Any one theory doesn't explain it. As soon as you get yourself on one theory, um, there's a hundred people, well, whatever. There's a lot yeah. of people there yeah. showing you very specifically how you're wrong in very specific ways. So yeah. you can't be that you can't be that sticky with with, with weird stuff like well most things but especially right. the only thing you'd probably be sticky with is moral questions like don't hurt people and things yeah. like that but other than that I think you know bets are off to uh, right. to Any, try and examine some of these mysteries anything anything goes and you got to maintain it all and keep all those balls in the air at the same time <laughs> and is uh, that what you do yeah kind of yeah. But nobody's really pushed into this. Uh, yeah, so I, I'm seeing an, an opening. I'm seeing a lane here. Yeah, uh, I'm seeing uh, you know some of the people I really respect as, as world class thinkers, and they're they're hinting at this idea, mm -hmm. and even Hansen you know hints at it. Ballet and McKenna and others. Uh, it's like, well, wait a minute. Let's just charge into this for once and for all. Uh, you know, uh, let's just dive right in here and just see what comes. I'm doing it. See what comes my way. See what uh, evidence mm -hmm. what, what, that would either. Verify. I, I admire your stuff because you 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 do this conscious switching of channels. Uh, you mean in theorizing? Yeah. 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 I conscious. Do. I mean, not going. I don't yeah. like this. I'm going to this. Right. But it's like, what is this? How does this work? How does this right. work? Yes, How does this yes. work? It's a lot of trial and error in that kind of. There's thing. a commercial on this one, so I'm going to go to this right. One for a while. <laughs> right. That's a good analogy. <laughs> but I, you know, I kind of I, I've learned a technique over this period of time, and uh, it's to, uh, it's my own technique of just keeping your establishing a blank mind about things at mm, certain mm -hmm. times. And it's it's really hard to describe what it is. I, I learned it from music, because I'm a musician and a songwriter. And it's, you know, in creation of stuff, as it, being an artist or whatever, you you get into these these mind zones. You get very determined. You've got your idea. You want to do it this way or that way. It's like, eh, it's just not quite working. I don't know. Yeah, because it, it's, it's, uh, it shuts down. It, it collapses the waveform of possibility. Yeah, right, it does. And... Uh, so I learned how to, you know, go into those spaces of uh, blank mind and just sort of let things come or not come, one or the other, you know, not force it, 
And I, I, we were talking about this in terms of research and books and stuff and, and the synchronicities of things coming along when you need them and uh, through various, various uh, avenues that you hadn't even expected. That You know, you could just go grab a book off of the library just for no reason. No reason. Yeah. I opened it up to page 283. Like, oh, wow. This is exactly what I've been working on. This is amazing. Yeah. How could this be? Yeah, don't don't mention the word magic. Yeah, it's but it's some sort of <laughs> it's attunement to the synchronicities yes. that are around us all the time. And, and you unhook from time and causality and right. these things. Yeah. That are, th- this is what I brought up with Raiden. I said, one time you told me um, meaning is a dimension. And he said, I don't even remember saying that. That's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of like that, too. It's like... I said that. <laughs> oh yeah, it must be true then. <laughs> <laughs> That's an important concept here. That um, it, you know, it, it was an exact term for saying if you if you have if you concentrate on something hard enough, whatever it is that will bring that information to you or make those connections to you will come to you. They're probably there all the time. It's just that yeah. you've switched your station to you know this. And so, right. and it starts to make me think, what could happen if I was aware of everything all the time? I guess I'd be the Dalai Lama or something. Yeah. <laughs> or dead. <laughs> so. By the way, I asked one of the high, highest Buddhist guys and came from Tibet and was visiting a retreat center near us. I had an audience with him. It was Trung, Trungpa's son, Rinpoche Trungpa. Anyway, he was kind of he was high in the lineage of knowing all things Tibet. And I had a private audience that said, what's the deal on the tulpas? And he went, what? Yeah, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, you know, this book is talking about uh, this creation of... I these... bet he said, I'd never heard of that. Yeah, more or less. And I don't know if he was, if I had a sore spot, if that's something that they don't want to talk about. I mean, yeah. I, I could see why they might, in America, not want to talk about that kind of thing. Yeah. That's like, well, oh, you know, you're not, I'm not going to go or there. Or it's just something that never came up in his sect, and he doesn't, it's just Perhaps. not an idea. Yeah, I just thought, oh, geez, I really thought I was honest. I thought he was going to say, yeah, yeah, well, here's the <laughs> technique, here's how you create them, here's how you get rid of them. But nope, shut down. Yeah. So I'll never know for sure, but... Uh, it's kind of like you know any of these things you you get two points in a row sometimes any of these research type projects and uh, you and you say oh I got two points in a row all I need is that third point I got a straight line I got direction it's Never not going to get not going to give it to you <laughs> it will as a, matter, as a matter of fact just to be spiteful will take away the second one <laughs> right? just leaving you with the one dot it's like oh man well that's not much of a trajectory is it. Uh, well, so, I tell people I've got this. I've tried to develop this almost Zen-like detachment, and that's easier for me because part of my cultural heritage is not Tibetan Buddhism. It's funny. I went to see the Dalai Lama once. And he said, "You know, you people, you Americans that come to this thing, you probably shouldn't. It's not part of your heritage. Go to your heritage and your lineage, and you will get more understanding out of that." And people were shocked and stunned and a little bit pissed off, which I think he thought was very funny, yeah. but he meant it. So, um, I'm, I look more sort of to the Zen tradition and of the no mind because I, it keeps me from getting emotionally attached to things. And you notice I said at the end of my talk, I said, don't get emotionally attached to these right. viewpoints because you'll just, you'll, it, that's a recipe for frustration. Oh, it's yeah. a recipe for shutting down learning. And if you step back, 
oblique things that you did not realize, mm-hmm. uh, intuitive things will happen that make more of a difference. Just like you were saying about uh, right. thinking about something and opening it to the page or yeah. whatever. And I don't have to assign a woo-woo to that or anything. You just accept it as something yeah. that is helpful. Yeah, yeah. Chris O'Brien notes the same phenomenon. He can figure out how to go and, and just open a book, and there is what he was exactly after. Speaking of the Dalai Lama, I did have an audience with him at one time many years ago. Uh-huh. And it was, I never knew what to make of it to this day. <laughs> <laughs> he was standing there, and the, his monk contingent was behind him. And they were all like, smile, you know, pleasant. And I went by and bowed slightly, and he shook hands with me. And then I smiled at him, and he just started laughing hysterically. And then he got to, and I started laughing, and then all the monks started laughing, and we were just laughing and laughing and laughing. I have no idea what that was about. That's perfect. It was a good laugh, but I just don't, what did he see in me that made him laugh so much? Like, what, an idiot? Or this guy probably needs a laugh? Or I don't think it's that simple, and I don't think it's that complicated. Well, it was fun, whatever it was, and it made me feel good. Yeah, well, see, there right? you go. That's so, all you need. So we just, we all just nodded our heads and kept laughing, and I walked away laughing, and he kept laughing, and then he met the next person coming along. And it's just, that's the experience, and I don't even know if you, if you think about it too much, it probably takes away from the experience. Right, well, it was kind of magical in its own way to me, you know, it was like, here's the Dalai Lama, wow, this is cool. Watts said that thing about the Zen priest, you know, what... What's the most important thing? And that the, the, the priest said, "Don't act, but act." And he thought, "Oh, that's great. That's a you know, that's a very Zen thing to say." But no, that what he actually said was, "Don't act, bad act." Oh, <laughs> be, be very mundane thing. Right. Treat people nicely. Yeah, <laughs> it all boils down to be kind. You know? Yeah. But, so uh, yeah, but the, you, the minute you start, this is just like the paranormal. The minute you start putting yeah. meaning on things or forcing meaning on things. It seems like you force yourself yeah. down a track, and you miss. And like you said, you try to put three dots together, and right. one's not there, and the second one disappears. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's just, uh, it's funny to me, you know, because I kind of expected about anything I do, uh, which, you know, is a Zen attitude I have about it, similar to what you're talking about. Uh, but something right now, I, I'm a little more active with all of this, because I'm starting to see... No, guy. you can be active occasionally. No, I've seen the Gaia theory, trying to work Gaia into paranormal studies, I think has some benefits as a survival strategy in some ways. Because uh, I think we're, we're on the verge of ecological collapse, this, the whole planet. I mean, I, I don't. We're just teetering on the edge of absolute... Yeah, that homeostasis is, for, for the first time right. in history, not working. It's because we've overwhelmed it. Or, uh, and why Gaia would allow us to overwhelm it, I'm not sure. See, that's a kink in that theory. The Anthropocene overwhelmed the Gaia. Yeah. It, uh, it just somehow we got ahead of the process and Gaia can't keep up. But this, the game's not over yet, so we don't exactly know if Gaia is sentient and has a plan here. But uh, Yeah, as George Crowley <laughs> said, the planet is fine. <laughs> right. It'll go on without us. Yeah, it'll go on just fine. <laughs> if it's relying, if Gaia, for instance, is relying on us as the keystone species to get all this together and get it off the Earth and spread it all around the universe, right. uh, then uh, it has a purpose for us. And this this goes back to you know studying how 
culture drives evolution now uh, more than genes. And this, and this goes back to when the, our ancestors, uh, 2.5 million years ago, suddenly developed this huge brain capacity. And uh, both Darwin and Wallace, who were co-discoverers of natural selection, I guess, uh, they were very puzzled, both of them. It's like, why does our species have such a huge brain that's way beyond uh, excessive of need? And other people have stepped in since then and said, uh, it's because we were supposed to be meme carriers and we need all this extra mental capacity to carry those memes to be, you know, culturally potent or whatever. Uh, which, so, you know that Susan Blackmore, have you ever run across her? She wrote a book on memes. Yeah, I read about her in, in one of your writings yeah. there, and that she finally gave up on the paranormal and threw all her stuff out. Yeah, she threw all her paranormal stuff out, uh, which was a darn shame. She was a member of the Psychop group, and then seeing who could be the most skeptical, right? Oh, yeah, okay, now I know she is. Yep. Uh, yep. But she did have a good point uh, about that uh, actually at, at that at that time, uh, somehow our species became a meme carrier of major proportions. And, of course, if you're conversant in UFO lore, you know that's, people say, well, that's when the aliens stepped in and took, a, you know, an ape and made it into us, you know, for, there was an intervention, a genetic intervention of sorts, which is a possibility. <laughs> it's like, who knows? It's like, why us? Of all the different creatures on Earth, yeah, some well, people let's say... some channel switching here. Yeah, some people say, well, it could have easily, just as easily have been the rep, rep, reptilians, the reptiles that became the keystone species, but it was us. And even, you know, the, the asteroid that wiped out the Cretaceous period... Uh, that enabled us. Before that, our, our mammal ancestors were just running around through the legs of the dinosaurs. And, you know, we were just little furry creatures. Once the dinosaurs were out of the picture, by that cosmic event, the mammals could prosper. So it's like, was that planned somehow? Jeez, <laughs> uh, probably not. Obviously. But it was a consequence of that, and the mammals prospered. And then we got to be apes, and then we got a huge brain, way in excess of need and adaptive purposes, according to Wallace and Darwin. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, what, what is this ape with a giant head supposed to be doing around here? So, uh, but I, I, my point is that I, I think it's helpful for people. I would like to see everybody study Gaia theory. And they are right now. They're calling it Earth System Science because most academic groups can't take yeah, Gaia because yeah. it's too mystical. Yeah, don't, don't, yeah. But I th the Europe uh, European Space Agency just put up a satellite called Gaia. Did you yes, know? I know. And I thought, well, they're good for them. They're, they're not going with this. They're going with Gaia. And they're going to independently monitor the atmosphere with their own satellite. To see what's going on. Too much methane. Got to do this. Got to do that. Yeah. Uh, so the, I see this as like the actions of an organism, basically. It's, uh, and our, you know, our ability actually to theoretically knock out asteroids that were heading toward Earth, it's to me like uh, you know an auto-immune uh, system of a human being. It's yes. Like, Here comes a cancer cell. Let's we'll go out and then grab it and destroy it. Yes. So it doesn't steer it somewhere else or whatever. Steer, yeah, we'll kill it. We'll get it out of here. We'll pass it through, whatever. So I, I tend yeah. to see this analogy going between 
biology and human events on, on a macro scale. Uh, and the fact that I'm still completely blown away that we can send a, a rocket to an ast- asteroid somewhere, I, I think it was billions of miles away, as I recall, and land it with a camera on it. Yes, the uh, uh, Philae lander from, from the ESA. Yeah. Somebody made a little film of, like, a bunch of stills. Right, and it, it, it kept the picture until just right when it hit the rocks or the surface, as far as I could tell. Yeah, I think it's it got a few from the surface, and then it had solar batteries, and it was it yeah. landed in a place that was in the shades of the batteries Sucking right out. So, I mean, to me, that is just one of the most remarkable thing I can ever think of. I just can't... Yeah, land, uh, landing on ti- Titan, was it? Uh, that... F- well, Titan, yeah, that was another one. That, that was, freaked me out too. There's, was, there's there's a there's something sitting on the moon of another planet. Yeah. So here we are. We're sending our, all our feelers out. We're trying to scope. To me, out. that was a work of art, actually. Oh, it was just um, in every way. It was just phenomenal. But uh, as a giant organism, you could say that we're extending feelers into other environments. Is this a potential? Place? Yes. Is there a possibility here? And in the process, we're gaining all this technology. Uh, it, just by doing that in itself. Yeah. And then you start thinking about, well, geez, how do we get all this technology? And one of the things that promoted it more than anything was like World War. <laughs> so as you get into some real ironies there, it's like, right. we hadn't had these giant mobilizations for these world wars. Uh, I don't think we'd be in the stage of rocketry that we are in now by any means. Right. Or in any number of other ways. Uh, so, disastrous events can kind of feed back into a larger flow of events and say, well, the good news is that we got all this new technology out of it, which can be used for good or evil, you know, but it's there. Uh, so, you know, I'm thinking if people could spend a little more time working on the guy idea, and I, I agree with Hansen that uh, what started out, what used to be supernatural, went to being called paranormal, and now it's called anomalous, right? And so he's, his argument is that he's not, doesn't like the word anomalous all that much, because it's sort of neutral and sort of mechanistic in a way. Uh, and it's basically saying, well, this is not part of the overall mechanics of the universe. This is just something we're going to set over here. And it puts it outside of its history. And so I... I agree with him. I, you know, I think the, they're all of one piece. The super, supernatural, the paranormal, and what they're calling the anomalous now, phenomena. I think it's all the same thing. And it's, it's, it's some sort of force field or some sort of realm or dimension. I don't know. I mean, all those words fall short, as you know. Yes. No, no. The la- language the language degrades whatever it is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you're, 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 Raiden said you're trying to kill a fly with a sledgehammer. Mm-hmm. So that just trying to trying to move along in those realms, and I think it would be healthy for everybody to understand Gaia and to see for themselves if they think it could be adapted to paranormal research, and if this any of these ideas might ring true. Mm-hmm. And it's especially going back to studying history, it's like, hmm, what happened here when that happened? What was the consequence of this, and what was the unintended consequence of this? And uh, I think, it, it, to, in my mind, it, it helps me understand my place in all of it, and humans' place in all of it. And we have a role, and are we going to fulfill it, or are we going to let, you know, destroy our own home out of fits of insanity? <laughs> And uh, 
I mean, you read that book, Sapiens, and his bottom line is this is the most destructive species that's ever been unleashed on the planet. We have created more mayhem in every possible way than any species could ever even get close to. Everything we touch, we decimate. You know, it talks about all Australia and places like that. Well, sapiens came over there and they just wiped out everything, ate it all up, killed it, and, uh, and we're still doing it. So if we want to turn this around culturally, politically, whatever, uh, we can't, we've got to be paying attention to a collapsing ecosphere because that's our sustenance. For the mo- in the moment, much less any futuristic ideas of what we're yeah. supposed to do or go or be or what role we're supposed to have. I mean, I, I know that's asking a lot for most people to even ponder that. And it's, it's asking a lot that most people even ponder any of this material because they can't find an application to their lives. Yes. Well, that's a, the, the, uh, I get the argument from people, and I, I actually talk to my wife about this because she's studying mythological uh, She's involved in mythological studies. She's getting a degree in it. And the, uh, the argument is, well, how is this relevant to anything? How is this practical? It's like, it's relevant to everything. That's how humans see them. How do we tell our own stories? How do we see ourselves? This all trickles down to everything we see here and all the technology and all that. It is how we see ourselves and how we define ourselves and how we tell our stories about ourselves that really matter. And bringing this into the, uh, you know, into the paranormal world, I think is even more important because it's closer. Because we have nothing to hang on to in a practical way with these things because you can't test for them really, uh, with few, um, uh, you know, minor exceptions. But if you can look at how we look at things and take that apart, mm-hmm. maybe we can get closer to maybe not understanding what the source is for these things, but how we react to it, how we see it, becomes what it is. And you can approach it in that way. And maybe not get an explanation, but more of an understanding and and how to deal with it in a way that's that's real to people rather than just telling funny stories about lights in the sky or whatever. Right. Well, that's beautifully said. <laughs> totally, totally with that. You know, I think that's... That's a good justification, should you ever need one. <laughs> <laughs> it's just one opinion. <laughs> I'm not right about anything. I'm just interested in things here, good, David. Good, Yeah, I know you are. You're, you're, you're quite a seeker, and I, I really respect that. And you have been for years. I mean, you just keep going straight ahead, poking and looking and looking under rocks and doing all kinds of... Yeah, and you've done it in a lot more practical way, you and Chris. Yeah, so we had that, we had that like I say that steaming evidence to deal with. It wasn't so, <laughs> so, that rotten carcass. It's like oh man. Well, it, it, just to branch off a little bit there, to think about uh, where it's led us. The people that have been in the field of mutilations, in particular, have stuck with it. And yeah. there are a hell of a lot that have stuck with it. Very few. Right. It is. It is ejected. I, I know at least a couple that just said, "Oh, screw oh, it." Oh, I know so many. And you must know. I know so many who. I think in one of the words I said, they're burning hulks by the side of the road at this point. You know, uh, people commit suicide and people die strangely, and yeah. uh, people just throw up their hands and never want to discuss it again. Do not ever talk to me about this again, kind of thing. And it's like, okay, okay, geez. Uh, it can get very poisonous. It's really yeah, strange. It, it can. It can be poisonous, and it's it has got an element of danger to it. Uh, I've never really 
that hasn't predominated with me, although I've gone through some very fearful moments and very paranoid moments. That's part of the game, part of the experience, but uh, you kind of overcome it and keep rolling. Chris yeah. is the same way. He's fearless, really. But uh, where it's led us is like, uh, sort of like NIDS, uh, Colin Kelleher, for instance. Uh, of all that research, it's gone on into cattle mutilations and paranormal phenomena on the Skinwalker Ranch, they call it. And then he puts out a book on mad cow disease. He thinks... Apparently, that somehow the, what's happening to the animals is somehow related to perhaps mad cow or its, it's variations of getting into our food chain or into... Yeah, but that's what uh, Gabe Valdez was saying. Yeah. I think that was his main idea. Yeah, and Chris is, presents a very, very compelling argument in that direction in stalking the, the herd. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've worked on it quite a bit, and, and with some of the results that we lab results that we have, and some things that would indicate that that was kind of right on track in many ways. I don't, it's not my, it might be part of the picture. I, I certainly would not rule that out. Yeah, it might even be a big chunk of it, but it's yeah. not, it doesn't seem to be the whole thing. But I, I'm more looking at what it has done to. As a, as a meme in the culture to develop more of a belief in us being spacefaring. And I think my original theory that actually caught on pretty strongly back in the early 80s was the nuclear monitoring theory. And oh, I, had, yeah. I, yeah. I went to Senator Schmidt's conference and I had my, I was the first speaker. I had my board up there in the United States with all the pins of the mutilations in it. It's like, okay, orange is all the nuclear sites and test sites and this, that, and that. Green is the mutilations. And blue is the UFO sightings, and black are the helicopters. And so here are these cl- clusters, you know. And they, you start looking at them, tracing them, and they were going down these watersheds. Uh, almost all of the mutilations in the United States, over 90%, are downwind of the Nevada test site, for starters. Downwind. Right off the bat. Yeah. And California is virtually untouched. It's almost like somebody was sampling, eh, let's just see what happened in Washington, Oregon. Arizona is, is largely untouched. But if you study the wind patterns from the 100 above-ground tests, it was blowing up in, east. It was blowing east and, and up into Canada in a way that I never really realized. That's right, because Canada has right. a very heavy uh, uh, legacy of mutilations. Yeah, especially western Canada, exactly where all this stuff was blowing. So I was going, well, and then, the, you know, we start tracking the dates. When did the first uh, nuclear power plants go online? That was back in the early 70s in the upper Midwest, like Minnesota. Places mm-hmm. up in there, there's a big reactor go online, and then there'd be a mutilation downstream from it. This is like 73. You know? And then another one, another one, another one like that. And then you look at somewhere like the Idaho uh, reactor test site in, in upper uh, Snake River, I guess it is. And it's completely ringed by mutilations all the way around it. And the rest of the state's relatively untouched. It's like, wow, sure looks like somebody was interested in what's going on with these nuclear sites. And, yeah. But then... But the stupid thing is it doesn't, it doesn't explain everything that's going on with right. it. Right, of course not. But So then, you know, I, I shift the gear and go over it's like, well, let's look at this, these phenomena as almost like dream imagery. Hmm. It's like, you know, there are various kinds of dreams. They're like prophetic dreams. They're cautionary dreams. They're... Unresolved conflict dreams. There, uh, there's several several realms 
that you can access through dreams is of your own unconscious mind. So, in some, and, and a lot of discoveries have been made, major scientific discoveries have been made by people yeah. who tapped into, who woke up like, oh, the structure of DNA is a spiral staircase. Oh, the benzene ring has six sides. Uh, I, yeah. I dreamed it, or Tesla even, yeah. at our alternating current. Uh-huh. So, you can, you've got access in your own unconscious mind to this information. Yeah, to non, non, non-temporally based yeah. information. And Tom Bearden is another one I, in the early days, uh, I talked to quite a bit about this, Excalibur briefing. Yeah. And he was into the idea of what he called prophetic toll points. Huh. Uh, these are produced by the collective unconscious that you can read as a, something that's going to happen some, in the future. As a marker, yeah. A marker, yeah. So it's like, is that, is the nuclear connection, could you then shift it over and like, Whatever the phenomenon is, it's kind of pointing like you should pay attention over here, and look at this, look at the red cow, look at the any yeah. of those number of things. That information comes through all of this paranormal signal, I guess. And if you can pick it out of there, and Kelleher and Chris kind of came to similar conclusions. It's like we should be thinking about mad cow and these cows. What's the deal? What's the food chain? And Chris has become very, very active, I would say, in, in animal rights type stuff, or in factory farming, and how our food chain is produced. This has all led him in that direction. Yeah. I've become really Gabe interested. Gabe stopped eating meat, yeah. as his well, son said. Jeez, you know, there you go. And then uh, I've become more interested in environmental issues, because I'm so into Gaia and Earth System Science. Oh, I can uh, see where you're going with this. Yeah. What's, what, what is this very uh, in-your-face manifestation of this guy hypothesis forcing you people to do? It's pushing on areas that yeah. doesn't have anything to do with what's the cattle mutilation, but what are the results, what do we know from this, yeah. and how can we you know, address some of these problems? Well, I, that's pointing out the problems, as Bearden, I didn't like his interpretation, but I think he may have been onto something. It's a, it's a tulpoidal yes. entity, energy, whatever you want to call it. If nothing else, it's some kind of strange feedback loop. Yeah, that's good. That's, that's exactly it. Uh, a strange feedback loop. So it pushes you in those directions, like, pay attention over here, pay attention over here. So it's similar to it, the unconscious in an in a individual providing that information to your consciousness should you decide to recognize and accept it, which a lot of people don't pay any attention at all to. But uh, so that uh, that's a tangible result, which I think I would not necessarily be aware of the environment the way I am now without cattle mutilations, which mm-hmm. I don't know what... Maybe I would. Sometimes, sometimes I think uh, I go in that library and I look and I say, first of all, I think if somebody didn't know me, wandered in here and looked at all these books, what would they think I was trying to do? <laughs> and, uh, I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure what anybody would think. They say, well, it's a naturally curious guy. I don't know. You're throwing the net wide. <laughs> really, you're wide. <laughs> See what comes back. Oh, a sardine. Dog <laughs> so, I mean, it does have practical effects on me, but it. another part of the evolutionary imperative idea is just the need for mystery. And the experiments that they're doing these days about uh, brain, how your brain actually grows by being challenged. Yes. 
we're doing the crossword puzzle, the nuns, and I don't know if you followed all those things, are the ones, the ones that challenge their brain every day. They're, they had an increased capillary growth and flow in their brain. What a surprise. And they had increased <laughs> neuron uh, synapses. Yeah. Uh, highly increased. And it's just by something as simple as doing a crossword puzzle and just challenging yourself a little bit. Just think of what... This this is a, such a huge challenge. Just think what this does. I don't feel like I need to do crossword puzzles to challenge my brain. All I got to do is read this, this, and this. Maybe that's why people play video games and stuff. I you know I I never play video games because I feel like I'm wasting time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's just because I'm old, and also because I'm interested in these other things. There is a book that peop that is just this dumb little book, and people tell me when they want to get into the occult. I said before you do that, go read a book called Psycho Cybernetics. Oh yeah. By Maxwell Maltz. Mm -hmm. If you want to take all the mumbo-jumbo of, of uh, the Western occult system, or most of it, and boil it down to its essentials, that's the book. And it's like, it's like 80 pages long. Yeah, yeah. And what right. he says in that is that humans are, are goal-seeking. And if you're, not, if you're not seeking a goal, you just kind of stagnate. Yeah. Uh, goals are good. Yeah, find a goal and seek it, and then you yeah. you don't have to worry about meaning of life and all this stuff. Hopefully, it's a worthy goal. Yeah, that too. <laughs> yeah. he said I can't tell you what the goal is, but well, he's but he was a uh, a plastic surgeon. Yeah, and he said he noticed people just by changing their appearance, their entire attitude would change, their life would change, they'd get more friends. They, and he said, they didn't look that much different to me. But for some reason, they thought so. Yeah. So what's the basis of that? It's because of what they thought of themselves and what they thought they were doing in life and what their purpose was. Change because of their appearance. Yeah. But he says, you don't need to do that. Just reprogram yourself to right. seek a goal. And you won't need any of this other junk. Yeah, I think that's, that's very good advice. And I, the goals change, too. Yeah, no, it's, it's they, always changing. And they move the goalpost every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> the phenomenon moves the right. goalpost, as you were saying. Wait a minute, I was just driving down the field, and now the goalpost is over on the side with that. <laughs> uh, but I guess what I'm saying, at least, is I, the cattle mutilations have not been a negative force in my life. It's been one of the greatest educational experiences I could ever imagine. It's provoked me and tweaked me and propelled me and compelled me and uh, it's been like a gigantic college course in virtually every human yes. endeavor yeah just about every single one you have to be somewhat conversant no matter what it is paleontology I don't know heart surgery everything yeah uh, just about anything I can think of I've scanned it at some point and say well how would this work or what information would I get from this area and bring it over to here so it's this constant scanning and bringing it in and evaluating the information, discarding some, putting some in the whole folder, and then putting some in the hot folder. You know? Yeah. And so and then you keep rearranging, and rearranging. So I mean, it's like a gigantic lifelong learning process, which I I don't know how I could have gotten any other way. Yeah, that became your whatever it is, your gateway, your your yeah. instrument, whatever it yeah. is. I think I could have just as easily entered into the study of Bigfoot and ended up in the same place I am now. Exactly. And, and I think, uh, boy, that's... that's well, like, yeah, you're bringing your personality and your set yeah, right. to, the, to the setting. <laughs> so, I mean, I have a real hard time trying to figure out how to put Bigfoot into this equation, any of the so-called cryptid creatures. The only thing I could ever come up with with Bigfoot, for instance, 
Chris says, well, Bigfoot's paraphysical. And I said, well, what does that mean? Uh, but just a, in a kind of metaphorical sense, uh, you know, Bigfoot is obviously not been captured. It's, it's elusive. It's paranormal, I would have to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what is it telling us about it? What's, how's that in a, interacting with our individual and collective psyche? The only thing I could ever come up with is it's some it's the opposite side of the coin from the high-tech ET vision of the human future. Yeah. And it's like a glimpse into our, the past of our natural, pristine state on the Earth. Bigfoot is a pretty peaceful creature yeah. that lives totally at ease in nature and uh, thrives. And it, it could be that, like I say, the metaphorically uh, opposite of the high-tech little aliens in the craft, and here's Bigfoot just munching away in the woods. Another beautiful day for them, you know. And that could be <laughs> could be a flashback to our ancestry somehow, of another something closer to the Garden of Eden concept, or some yeah, there's this natural man, natural um, man, another state of being, right? Uh, that no, that wasn't David Hume. I can't remember who was the big natural man uh, philosopher in the 19th century. Rousseau. Right? Rousseau? That's it. I'm sorry. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. Something uh, one of the listeners um, pointed out to me, and I'm sorry I don't remember his name. Yeah, we, we, he, he said, I think you should have somebody on to talk about the difference in Bigfoot, the East and the West. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, in the Eastern states and in the South, especially in the South, it's looked at as a, as a kind of a dangerous predator varmint thing. And in the West, mm-hmm. it's looked on as what you just said, right. uh, you know, a peaceful. And I said, I think that kind of reflects who goes out and looks for it. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There you go. You got tree huggers looking for it, and it's a wonderful, right. you know, uh, whatever. And you've got somebody who's in a hunting culture, right. and it's something to be hunted down. Well, you mentioned earlier, you reminded me of one of the stories I told in the foreword about the young girls in Montana and the Bigfoot walks by. That's one of the creepiest stories I've ever heard, and, and I think Chris mentioned it. I love well, that story. It's in, it's in uh, Mystery Stalks the Prairie. But this is one of the so-called 60 anomalies that uh, NIDS discarded and didn't even mention, right? Yeah. Any of those big questions. And, and their report on that area. Right. Yeah. They said, oh, these other anomalies, they, we only care about the UFOs and the helicopters. Right. Uh, so anyway, the, the Bigfoot's walking. They, the girls see the Bigfoot outside. And or whatever it is. You said it was something with some strange, inhuman face. Oh, uh, yeah. A very awful face and a uh, hairy, big, hairy creature. Yeah. And one girl grabs the twenty-two rifle, I guess, and fires a couple shots into the air. And warning shots. And the Bigfoot falls down theatrically, like, oh, you got me, and drags itself along the ground and then just gets up and walks away. It's like, what kind of behavior is that? <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, well, I'm really scared, yeah. Like that rifle, really, oh, you got me, yeah. <laughs> it's like something a little kid would do, but it's this giant, right. scary-looking thing that's in front of them. And the other one that's even kind of odder and stranger, I guess, in some ways, is the another Montana case where the guy's looking out the window and he sees the Bigfoot walking by the window with a big box under his arm. It looked like it was wrapped in black plastic with the back of it flapping. Oh, yeah, or a bale of hay or something, you said, maybe. A big-sized, large something or other Yeah, that was wrapped in what looked like black plastic, I think, and... Uh, you remember one end of it was kind of flapping loose. It's like, okay, Bigfoot walks by your window carrying a big black plastic something or other. 
<laughs> what is this? <laughs> Where's Where is he going? What is he doing? Is it, what kind of work is he doing? As I think those are all non-starter questions. Yeah. So this is the realm of the theatricality of the trickster, why a lot of these things that we're studying are of such a theatrical uh, element, because the trickster is a real theater guy, person. Yeah. And by the way, trickster... UFO phenomenon is very theatrical. Another just interesting thing that doesn't quite add up to me is that almost all tricksters are male. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, wait a minute. Well, why is that? Well, maybe male are the ones that can be idiots the easiest or something in the society. The women can't afford to ever assume that role of being unstable, destabilizing. they got to, you know, have them. And this is off the top of my head. Yeah, probably. well, it, as it, on a mythological level, yes. Yeah, I mean, obviously. So, uh, But across many cultures, yeah. actually. Yeah, so... Uh, the trickster is, is uh, amoral, immoral, he's amoral, not immoral. Yes. People make that mistake. And, yeah. and the trickster is not the devil. Uh, Christianity tried to graft the trickster onto uh, Christianity, make the trickster the devil, but that's not right. And as to the question of whether the trickster actually exists in modern culture, uh, Hansen and I agree that it does. And... Uh, Lewis Hyde, the other guy that wrote a really good trickster book, and he says, well, it's unlikely that the trickster could could exist outside of polytheistic societies. Yeah. And it can't exist in a monopolar religious realm. It's it can, kind of, but you don't have a name for it. Right. So I, I don't think that's true. I think if, it, if I'm correct in saying it's some form of a biological, unrecognized force of nature, it's going to exist in any milieu. Yeah. Uh, and it'll find a way to express itself if needed. So uh, I think that's, you know, the guy, Lewis Hyde, that wrote that book his, was not a paranormal type guy by any means. He's a creative writing professor at Harvard, but a really good writer. So... Uh, Anyway, we've got that. We've learned a lot. We, <laughs> we learned, uh, what did we learn today? Let's see. Well, no matter how much you know. I, I just read this article. It's kind of interesting. It's like, why is that, that, we get to the end of this and we don't know anything. <laughs> we don't really know. And we're here to, we're the first people to tell you that. But I, I saw an article that made me feel better. It's like, why do people have, some people have so many books and a lot, most of them they haven't even read. And it's, because, it's good to do that because it reminds you of how ignorant you are. <laughs> it's like, well, that's actually quite good because I go in and look at a lot of those books and say, someday I'm going to read that and then I, I'm really going to understand quantum physics after I read that someday. And, but you just it's a constant reminder you don't really know much. You're just barely scratching the surface of any of this. Yeah. I, not I, you I, personally, but no, no, I, I, I know I am. <laughs> right. All of us, right. all of us are. Yeah, the first right. person that says they have the answer is—that's what I say in top lectures. Like, run from those people really fast. Right. Yep. Uh, and if you're looking for an answer, you're not getting it from me. And if somebody wants to give it to you, careful. Yeah. Well, I'm certainly for anything not. really. I guess unless it's you know financial advice, I have no idea. Something practical, I suppose, but not life advice. Or paranormal advice, or whatever it is. Yeah. If somebody can throw you 50 different, well, even two more different questions that you never knew about, that person's worth listening to to me. Yeah, well, they come along like that, and somebody will really jog me, and I say, wow, I never thought of it that way. That's really great. Yeah. And I'm very appreciative when that happens. 
Chris Lambright did that, and Greg too at this at this yeah. conference. Both, both Val, Greg Valdez and Chris yeah. pointed out stuff in the Spenowitz right. and with the mutilations and all that that I'd never thought of. Yeah, uh, that's why we go to those things because you get those nuggets every once in a while. I just hand it to you. It's like thank you so much. That's, that was a piece that I was missing in this part of the puzzle, yeah. and that really ties it all together. Yeah. A certain, you know, a certain aspect of it at least. So it's uh, it, it's going to go on forever, apparently. But uh, that's just, fine. I'm just thinking. I'm just trying to put this stuff out to try to hopefully jog people into maybe adopting a slightly more expansive world view. Yeah. You know, uh, about the possibilities and the interconnectedness of everything and everybody, and uh, the importance of our environment and our Mother Earth and how to sustain it and sustain ourselves and. Uh, but applying it to the paranormal is very tricky. Yeah. As you get into, you know, if you can't even get people to agree that there's such a thing as the collective unconscious, it's a huge jump to go over and say, oh, well, that's nothing. I mean, that is, the collective unconscious is just part of the guy in mind. Everything that exists that we see around us right now, our inner and outer, is actually part of that larger mind, if you want to call it a mind. Uh, or you can call it a metaphoric uh, dimension or something. Yeah. And we're shadows of that metaphoric dimension. Right. It's And it, it moves in some other realm that I, we're just dimly aware of. Yeah. Uh, it's like, what is this realm? Is this a whole other dimension? Is it? What is this? Yeah. Uh, how do you get in and out of it? Or how do you affect it? Or do yeah. you? M- model agnosticism is part of that. <laughs> right. You know, don't, don't cling on to one of them. Yeah. I... I uh, if we do want to end it here, I had one last question. Yeah. Um, are you looking for an answer, or do you care anymore? Both. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks, Thanks Greg. Dave. You're a great guy, man. <laughs> Thanks keep, so much. Keep up your good work. I really. Next do. time I'll ask you about Burroughs. Oh, okay. We'll, okay. Get, we'll get to it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right. Oh, what, uh, do you have music you want me to play when I put this together for the end I theme? I do. About what would it be? I'll, I'll talk to you after. Okay, and then I'll put it in. Okay, okay, thanks. This is David Perkins in Santa Fe, New Mexico, June 19th, 2018. This is a song called In a Perfect World that I wrote a while back. Say goodbye. There'd be no miss. 
perfect harmony in a perfect world. We don't run